Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week we turn to sound, and even more than we usually do. This is the first of two programs in which we'll hear from artists in Soundtracks, an exhibition of nearly three dozen works of sound art and works that use sound at SFMOMA. The show, curated by Rudolf Freeling and Tanya Zimbardo, is at the museum through January 1st, 2018. We'll hear from two artists in the exhibition this week and two more later this summer. Before we get to this week's artists, Bill Fontana and Christina Kubich, two artists whose work focuses on making audible the invisible, a couple of notes. SF MoMA has published a terrific in-depth digital catalog that it promises will change over the course of the show. We'll link to it from manpodcast.com. We'll also have links to the museum's other exhibition-related content, as well as to various other websites relevant to what Fontana and Kubich reference. Finally, as with the 2013 episode we did on the occasion of Soundings, an exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York, on this week's show, you'll only hear me introduce the artists. After that, I'll get out of the way, and you'll only hear them and audio clips of their work. Special thanks this week to Emma Lahaki at SFMOMA, who went above and beyond to help us out. Bill Fontana starts us off after the break. Frank Lloyd Wright at 150 Unpacking the Archive is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Marking the 150th anniversary of the renowned architect's birth, the critically acclaimed exhibition features everything from architectural drawings, models, and photographs to building fragments, textiles, and films, many on view for the first time. In this summer, the museum is open late until 9 p.m., Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, with live music in the Abbey Aldrich Rockefeller Sculpture Garden on Thursdays. Get more info and tickets at MoMA.org. SF MoMA presents Edvard Munch, Between the Clock and the Bed, on view now. Munch was one of the most celebrated and controversial artists of his generation, painting technically daring artworks that explore profoundly human themes about art, love, and the ravages of time. This not-to-be-missed exhibition reveals Munch as a tireless innovator throughout a career that spanned six decades, and offers a rare opportunity to see this modern master's paintings in person, including seven works never before shown in the United States. Edvard Munch, Between the Clock and the Bed, is on view now through October 9th. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. Support comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Blue Black, curated by influential American artist Glenn Ligon. Inspired by his experience of the Pulitzer's monumental Ellsworth Kelly wall sculpture, Blue Black, Ligon enlists the colors blue and black to pose timely and nuanced questions, touching upon notions of language, identity, and perception. The exhibition brings together a diverse selection of more than 50 works, ranging from abstraction to portraiture, from Norman Lewis to Andy Warhol, and including well-known works by Ligon. Blue Black is on view now through October 7th. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. My first guest is San Francisco-based artist Bill Fontana, who's been making what he calls sound sculptures for 40 years. He's exhibited his work all over the world, from the Venice Biennale to the Reina Sofia in Madrid to the Tate Modern, Madison Square Park, and plenty of other places. We'll hear clips from five Fontanas during this segment of the show. First, Speeds of Time, a 2004 musical deconstruction of Big Ben in London. Then two works from SF MoMA's own collection, Sonic Shadows from 2010, and Sound Sculpture with a Sequence of Level Crossings, a 1982 work that Fontana digitally remastered when the museum acquired it in 1997. 
The last two Fontanas we'll hear are a work he made at CERN's Large Hadron Collider in 2013 and Harmonic Bridge, a 2006 piece made for the Southwark London Underground Station and Tate Modern's Turbine Hall. Bill Fontana. I uh, am interested in how uh, physical situations, structures, and locations in the environment generate are alive with vibration and sound. I mean, because if you think of all the physical activity that's going on on a bridge, in a building, in a landscape, all this activity generates a certain amount of energy. And some of that energy you can experience as sound waves moving through the air, and you can you can map that and make really interesting uh, kind of immersive sound pieces about what how sound is moving through the air. When I originally started calling my works uh, sound sculptures, I was really, uh, really inspired by that kind of idea, thinking of a sound as this like three-dimensional uh, kind of entity in space. And if you uh, recorded it or heard it from multiple vantage points at the same time, it would reveal a kind of really interesting uh, kind of almost sculptural quality to it. Uh, I think uh, a, a very dramatic example of that recently was in 2008. I did an installation in uh, Tate Britain, of, which was a version of a piece about Big Ben, and it was a real-time sound mapping piece with the, about the bells of Big Ben. So there was a live microphone in the bell tower, of course, but also I had live microphones on the rooftops of various buildings in the surroundings of Big Ben, so you could hear how the, whenever the bells rang, how they sort of traveled through the acoustic space of central London, and they would arrive at these different points in space at, at different slightly different times. And when you heard the composite together, it became this kind of acoustically cubist rendering of a very familiar sound. Sound and vibration moving through the air is only one way that sound exists in the environment. Uh, I, I started in the late 90s to become very interested in acoustic measurement technology, which, uh, and, and the techni technical term for it, are accelerometers. Accelerometers are a type of piezoelectric transducer commonly used by uh, structural and, and acoustic engineers to measure vibration in a bridge, uh, in an airplane engine, in an automobile engine, things like that. And for me, this, these kind of sensors are like portals into this magical kind of hidden world of vibration that sort of permeates everything you can see. And 
the project uh, here at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art called Sonic Shadows is uh, is an example of uh, that kind of work because what I've done is I've installed a network of these kind of sensors into kind of the kind of the guts of the building in the sense that it's the part of the building that's generally referred to as the boiler room, which is the room where all the water pipes, ventilation systems, uh, all kind of meet and are controlled. And so all this machinery and pipes, when you put accelerometers on them, produces very interesting harmonics and uh, very, uh, very quite beautiful sounds of water moving through pipes. So that is kind of the musical vocabulary of sonic shadows, and that sound is then brought into uh, a space which is a, uh, a kind of atrium sitting on top of the Boda building. It's under a skylight. There's these curved walls. And there's a bridge that passes uh, directly under the skylight through these curve walls. And on the bridge, I've installed four ultrasonic transducers, which are these uh, super directional uh, loudspeakers that aren't really producing sound as much as a band of ultrasonic frequencies that act as a carrier signal. And so these sounds from the boiler room are projected on through four of these uh, ultrasonic emitters that are each on a robotic arm that are sort of slowly scanning the curve walls of the space. So what you hear are these very discrete sound reflections moving off the curved surfaces of the, uh, of the wall. And so using that kind of technology is a way to kind of, in a strange sort of way, it's like making a, a kind of a sonic wall drawing. Just to backtrack a little bit on the idea of mapping sound, sounds moving through the air, the, the old piece of mine, sound sculpture with a sequence of level crossings, which is installed outside the Howard Street entrance of SF MoMA, was originally created in 1982 for the 12th International Sculpture Conference at the Oakland Museum. And it was a real-time sound mapping project in which I placed live microphones on eight uh, power poles adjacent to eight railroad level crossings between Emeryville and Berkeley. And whenever a train passed through one of these points, it blew its whistle. And because you had eight of them, eight microphones in a sequence, they could all hear the train whistle from at different vantage points. And because of a phenomenon known as Doppler shift, as the train was approaching a microphone, it would start to to be rising in pitch, and as it passed the microphone, and the microphone is behind the train whistle, 
it was falling in pitch. So the real-time composite uh, sound images of the uh, of the rising and falling uh, in, in pitch created a, uh, an, an effect that was a little bit like a harmonica imitating the sound of a train. And so in Oakland, when this was done, there were eight loudspeakers uh, mounted along the parapet of the building behind the Oakland Museum, uh, which was the Oakland Auditorium, so that this real-time sound of these train whistles was it became elevated. They were literally, it was literally a sky train. It was a train in the sky that was occasionally kind of moving along this very long, uh, immense building facing Lake Merritt. And here at, at SF MoMA, the, the a real-time eight-channel recording of that piece is now playing uh, in that passageway. Well, I think uh, when I started out uh, in the late 60s, I, I was very, uh, became very interested in the idea that the act of listening was a way of making music. You know, when I was a, uh, a young composition student in Cleveland, uh, part-time at the Cleveland Institute of Music, I was writing these very minimal compositions and... I um, became actually interested in my own state of mind while I was trying to write music and how the sort of hyper-focus I would start to experience in the act of trying to create music sort of started to affect how I was just hearing the sounds around me. And I started to uh, investigate what this meant with making recordings of of sounds that seem musical or interesting, much the way a visual artists might use a camera. I started doing this around 1968, 67, 68. And then uh, I went to New York City and enrolled in a class that was supposed to have been taught by John Cage called Ex- Experimental Music Composition. 99% of the time he wasn't around. And other, a lot of other people sort of taught that class. I sort of got exposed to this wonderful network work of artists in New York in the late 60s that were connected with Cage and Fluxus and that movement. And what, what happened is this basic, this simple idea I had when I was a, in Cleveland of the act of listening as a way of making music was actually taken seriously and seemed like a valid aesthetic uh, kind of proposition. And then, as coincidence would have it, there was an amazing exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art 
1968 called The Machine Show. And in that exhibition, it was the first time I'd ever seen any of Marcel Duchamp's ready-mades. And there's a famous, uh, there's a famous work of the Duchamp's called The Large Glass, The Bride Strip Bare by Her Bachelor's Even. And in the notes uh, he had written, conceptual notes for that artwork, there was a passage, his, his original statement was in French, but the English translation was musical sculpture, sounds lasting and leaving, forming and sounding, a sculpture that lasts. And when I read that, and, and just the way I was starting to think about sound, that really emboldened me to start to call my work sound sculptures. And um, I started to think about sculpture as the embodiment, some kind of the embodiment of a certain aspect of the human condition, physical embodiment of, of that. And so I wanted to create artworks that, that kind of embodied the act of listening, which is why later on in my uh, career, I started devising these complex networks of multiple microphones and accelerometers and hydrophones, mapping uh, kind of sound aspects of an environment or physical structure. But in the, at this time, <clears throat> my efforts in this were very, very simple and low-tech. I started uh, doing a series of uh, installations called Sound Sculpture with Resonators, in which I would take uh, objects with resonant properties, uh, such as a large glass bottle that you might make wine in or a pipe, and place them on the roof of a building in New York City and put a, uh, put a microphone inside of this object to monitor how the object was actually acting as a resonant filter to just the noise in New York City. And I would install these, these simple live installations in a, in a in one alternative space in lower Manhattan <clears throat> called the Experimental Intermedia Foundation. <clears throat> These were my earliest kind of uh, real-time uh, sound cases. And what I liked about them is that it, they embodied to me as, a, as, a, as an artwork the, the act of listening as a way of making music. And that's, that's really where I started. And that's why, to this day, I, I like to... Uh, create kind of real-time relationships between a network of lis listening instruments and an architectural setting. an artist in residence uh, at CERN, um, the Large Hadron Collider was turned off because it was being uh, repaired. So it gave me access to this immense underground tunnel structure 
And the Large Hadron Collider uh, is this enormous blue metal pipe that's 27 kilometers long underground. And did some experiments uh, when I was there placing uh, accelerometers on this large metal pipe and, and, and bringing a, a loudspeaker system into the tunnel where it would, would project impulses of sound to, uh, to measure how the uh, Large Hadron Collider was reacting to the sounds I was projecting. And one of the experiments I had was I would have a loudspeaker system at one point in the tunnel and accelerometers very far away in another part of the tunnel just to explore how vibration was traveling through this immense steel pipe and how to excite it with uh, sound. One of my ambitions at the time, it never happened, was I wanted to create a kind of um, real-time sound piece in the Large Hadron Collider where I would set, install an array of loudspeakers at different points in the tunnel with a different, with different a combination of accelerometers and microphones. And when nobody was in the tunnel, kind of have a live, um, a live kind of sound piece kind of performing the Large Hadron Collider. That's what I wanted to do, but it didn't happen. I did a sound sculpture 11 years ago in the Turbine Hall of Tate Modern uh, called Harmonic Bridge. And, the, and the, 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 the sound source of that project was a very famous London bridge called the Millennium Bridge designed by Norman Foster that sits between the uh, Tate Modern and St. Paul's Cathedral over the Thames. It's a very famous kind of tourist location. However, the sounds I was accessing on the bridge were completely inaudible to anybody because they were, they, they were, the sounds came from a network of accelerometers that were mounted on different cables and structural points of the bridge. This, the musical vocabulary of that was this hidden dimension of vibration that was living in the structure as it reacted to wind, people walking on it, weather changes. And so that, dimension of sound on that structure was completely inaccessible to the thousands and thousands of people who walk across the bridge. They had no, you know, people had no idea that that world of sound was living in that structure. So in one sense, of course, that bridge was accessible because thousands of people walk across it every day, but the, the world of sound in living in that structure was a, would, would be a complete mystery to anybody. And it was that sonic mystery that uh, I brought into the Turbine Hall of Tate Mo Modern. When it was there, even though uh, there, were there was lots of publicity and signage that explained what it was, a lot of people came to the conclusion that the sounds I brought into the Turbine Hall were being made by the building itself because it was a, a former industrial space. So somehow it was plausible that these mysterious vibrations from the Millennium Bridge could somehow be a natural part of that building.
From Washington, D.C., and America's first modern art museum, come Manet, Degas, and Cezanne. Van Gogh, Gauguin, Bernard, and Matisse, along with Picasso, Brock, Miro, and Kandinsky. A modern vision, European masterworks from the Phillips Collection at the Kimball Art Museum through August 13th. Plan your visit at KimballArt.org. Singer-songwriter Steve Gunn performs at the Getty Center on Saturday, July 29th at 6 p.m. as part of the 2017 Off the 405 Outdoor Summer Concert Series. Enjoy Gunn's signature blend of country blues, underground, and psych in this guitar-forward rock performance. Bringing some of today's most exciting bands to the stage, the Getty presents an evening of live music and stunning architecture and breathtaking sunset views. Learn more about this show and other upcoming performances at getty.edu slash 360. Welcome back. My second guest this week is Christina Kubitsch, a German composer and artist who works with electromagnetic induction, making both walks for which listeners slash viewers wear a special set of headphones and move through a city to hear sounds that Kubitsch has guided them toward on a map, and sound sculptures that feature sound related to their physical presence. Kubitsch is one of the world's most honored sound artists. She's created dozens of sound walks all over the world, been included in the Venice Biennale, Documenta, and in countless group shows and solo exhibitions. The first Kubitsch sound we'll hear is from the walk she created for SF Moments from a security gate along Market Street. Next up will be a work she made for Mass Mocha in 1998 called The Clock Tower Project. The version we're going to hear is from When the Sun is Not Out. And then two more works Kubitsch has made for SF MoMA, a sound recorded in front of the 3rd Street entrance to the museum, and one from Yerba Buena Gardens, the park on top of the Moscone Center Convention Hall, and which is across the street from SF MoMA's 3rd Street entrance. Next, we'll hear a section of a 2006 New York City walk taken from a McDonald's. And finally, Sound from Cloud, a 2011-2017 work in SF MoMA's galleries. Christina Kubitsch. My main interest in my work is to discover things which are unseen, but what is more important for me, which are unheard. Um, I, uh, I'm working since a long time with uh, frequencies which you cannot hear with your ears acoustically, but which influence our world, which are around us, and I like to discover these sounds. And therefore, um, there can be different means uh, and possibilities of uh, making them audible, but it's not just to make audible something hidden. It's uh, to get this together with the world you see, the world you have around you, which is the normal everyday world. So whenever you um, see something and you hear something completely different, which is not connected to your usual perception of things, uh, your brain gets confused. And you think, what is it now? Is, is there a mistake? Is something not going together? And I like this special moment when things are not going together.
When I was at Masmoka and they showed me the clock tower, I was very much impressed that um, people had lost their acoustic time. Uh, there was this one tower and every 50 minutes there was a sound. Uh, and so they knew, oh, okay, it's 10 or 10.15 or whatever. And some elderly people told me that uh, when this stopped, when the bells were no more uh, used because there was no more uh, the regular 9 to 5 work in that factory, they felt a little bit lost as well. And uh, my basic idea in that case was to give them back uh, the sound which had disappeared, which had disappeared uh, from sociological or, um, well, work reasons. But of course, it was not just getting some bells and make them ring again. I wanted to transform this sound and give them something which was connected to the older world, but which was uh, somehow an artistic approach, a new approach. And therefore, I had this idea of making audible um, the light. The light is what you hear. And what you hear is uh, sometimes even nothing, because when it's dark in the morning at six o'clock in the winter, you just don't hear anything. Uh, the sounds are generated by the energy of solar panels around the tower. And uh, so if there's no light, you don't hear anything. You can continue to sleep. And if there's a lot of light, then the sound is quite intense and the um, intonation changes. The distance of the two bells, which were the origin of the sounds you hear, uh, the sound material you hear, um, are very clear and very loud. So this connection to a different world, which is the light uh, and the sound which people hear. Well, urban geography is something which is um, a word which is very interesting and which nowadays is used a lot. But in the beginnings of the 70s, when I started with my sound artwork, um, it was not used at all. Uh, I was always interested in the things around me. My background is a classical music background, but I never felt very well on stage. And so I was much more interested in site-specific things. And um, the work I do now as a SF MoMA uh, is related to the city itself, uh, most of all to the surroundings of the museum. And it's never an idea which you have as an artist. It's always a very long process. And some things are conscious, others are very unconscious. I started to work with electromagnetic induction in 1978. That was my first project. 
And this was only by chance because I had discovered a telephone cube amplifier and it was doing some strange things when I had it in my bag. I thought, this is this is really great. And um, so at that time, I studied, uh, I did evening courses at the um, technical school in Milan in Italy because um, I was not so happy with the electronic music department at the conservatory. My teacher, my professor, explained me, oh yeah, induction is when you transfer an electromagnetic field from one side to the next one, and then there's a little amplifier, and there's a coil, and I thought, this is a fantastic system. Okay, so I started to develop this system, and I did installations with cables. I put special sounds in these cable installations, and people could walk around with cubes, later on with headphones. At a certain moment, I would say at the end of the 90s, I got a lot of strange signals in my installations, which were not my own compositions. And uh, I was embarrassed. I was really um, yeah, angry. I couldn't do anything to get them out. And then some people said, there's such a lot of digital signals of electromagnetic fields around us nowadays that they enter your system. Even if you're in a room, in a closed room, it doesn't matter. It's, it's going through the walls. It's everywhere. It's in the city. This was the moment when I said, okay, then I have to listen to the city. Um, in 2003, I was in Tokyo, and there was a show of sound art. And I had a special headphone, which was very sensitive. So I walked around in Tokyo, and I had a lot of really, really fascinating sounds, just walking through the city, through the streets, going into the shops. And I remember Alvin Lucy was there at the time. I gave him the headphone and said, Alvin, would you like to listen to that? And he stayed away a long time and came back and said, this is like music. And he encouraged me to go on with this kind of discovery. So that's how it started, maybe. The headphones are based on our coils, metal coils, which are incorporated on each side. So you don't have a stair. You have to left, left, right uh, listening modes. I... I think I invented this kind of headphones. Of course, that induction this is, has been invented in the 19th century. There have been people like Nikola Tesla and other people who always were dreaming from transferring electromagnetic fields through the air. But the system is still the same. I mean, everything electrical creates an electromagnetic field, and this is picked up by the cords in the headphone. There is um, a little bit of electronics and then a small amplifier and uh, the speakers. So everything is direct. It's not sound design. I mean, what you hear is just electrical frequencies transferred to um, audible signals.
when I start to make the map for an electromagnetic walk, um, I have to do a research of several days before. And in the beginning, it's fun because I just walk around in the area and I know some places are always very interesting, like security um, systems, like light systems. But then you start to discover other things which are typical for that city, which are in unknown places, maybe. Um, I go everywhere. And uh, then the second phase is more difficult because I have to put all this around in a kind of score. The map for me is like a musical score. And people should not hear the same signal all the time, but discover things. It's as well, uh, I have to think if they can really go in some place without having a security guard asking them something or being kicked out immediately this happens too <laughs> and uh, it needs a little bit of courage sometimes to listen to certain places because you do not buy something in the shop you just listen to things to objects I have to consider all these things and then I make a drawing I walk around with people local people or in this case it was the director here of the, um, the curator of the show Ruda Freeling and I get a feedback then I go around again and I finally decide how to do the map but the map is only an invitation it's a start. It's like teaching people or making possible that they get the experience of how to listen. Sometimes you have to go very close to the screen or sometimes just stop, move your head. Or if you're sitting in the subway, then you are moved through the magnetic fields. And then people can take the headphone and go at their home or go to the airport or go underground or to the office if they want. I mean, it's completely free what they discover afterwards. The public spaces I often visit are full of Wi-Fi sounds because they are just a surface. The green is a surface and what is under it is either electrical lines or buildings or sometimes traffic lines. Um, and very often in the US I find these kind of nice hills with people having picnics on them. And then you put on the headset and you hear a real lot of intense uh, signals. Uh, in this case, it's the Moscone Center underneath. But I just had to look at it and I knew it was not a quiet, happy, natural place. San Francisco has a very special sonic characteristic. It's very different from New York, for example. New York was very loud, intense, a lot of deep droney sounds. Uh, San Francisco is lighter, it's uh, higher in the general sound frequency um, system. It's very different when you go around. And there is strange, really strange places like a seismic research center. When you are in front of there, you hear special ribbons. Uh, you have a lot of uh, advertisements, of course, the, the bus systems, and you have a lot of, of Wi-Fi, actually. 
it's very varied. You go around the corner, you have something different. But there's some sounds I never heard before. And this is what I'm really interested in because the electromagnetic sounds are just a kind of portrait of the city as if you would listen to the acoustic sounds. If you go to the underground instead of you have a very old-fashioned electromagnetic sounds like in the bar trains it's you hear it's more analog systems and um the yeah well i have been only the walk is only in the center so i'm sure if you go out of the center of san francisco go to some other part of the city it might be a completely different walk and you could have 10 of them in in one city but most of my walks are in city centers or in closed buildings. And I would say I, I clearly can distinguish uh, San Francisco um, from other places. I don't know if people have the same feeling when they walk around. I have uh, made a lot of research outside of the city for myself. I have a huge archive and I'm recording constantly since 2003. And of course, as well in the countryside, as well in places uh, which are far away from what is called a city or a cosmopolitan uh, surrounding. Uh, but I mean, it's very hard to find a silent place. Uh, when you're in the country, you have all the electricity lines above your heads or underground. I was part of a film which was called What We Don't See. It's about uh, electrosensitive people. And for them, it's very, very hard to find a place where they are really not uh, near telephone centers or electrical wires and so on. Um, in this film, we went to the mountains very high up in Austria. And this was one of the very, very few places that was only ice around and no electromagnetic fields. But uh, as I had to do recording, I created the electromagnetic fields by m myself because I had to wear a little uh, recorder and a headset. So I, I was the one in that case who was, you know, <laughs> poisoning the surrounding. What I noticed as well doing this now for about 15 years, it is harder and harder to find silent places. The general level of electromagnetic noise has really um, become very strong, very intense. And therefore, I had to modify the headphones as well. I had to change the intensities. I had to have different levels because people react to these sounds um, in different ways. Uh, some people do not even support them on the lowest level. Other like heavy metal kind of sounds, or maybe their ears are no more so good. That's <laughs> maybe connected. Really like it strong. But generally, walking around in a city, it's very, very hard to find even a small place where it is silent. I mean, I, I didn't find any place like that in San Francisco. And this is a general thing um, in the countryside, too. It's, it's not that you go on a cemetery or you go 
in a place. Uh, you see the cows, you see the animals. I don't know what. You enjoy the green and you think here it is quiet. It's not quiet. And this is something which is changing very quickly in the last, um, I would say, three or four years. In the 70s, I went three or four times to New York, and it really helped me. I think it was one of the most important things for my work, my career, and for myself as a person, to meet, for example, John Cage. I had met him in Bremen before in Germany. Just talking to him, not having any kind of uh, artistic explanation, just be with a person like that, so open. And then Pauline Olivares was great help for me, Phil Niblock, all these people uh, were more important than any conservatory in, in Germany or Austria or Switzerland where I studied. I would say it was not just one person or one work, it was really kind of atmosphere. Women were accepted to do things over here and they were accepted to be composers. There was a lot of electronic music. So I, I would say my really my background in a way of influences, you can find it a lot of it in the 70s in New York. The cloud, which is now hanging in one of the rooms of the soundtrack exhibition, is a real cloud. It's a heavy cloud. It's made of uh, 1,500 meter of cable. I don't know how much this is in American size. And uh, it's red. It's the red cable. Um, it's made of 14 channels. Every channel is made of a separate part of cables. And people come in, see this big cloud, and they put on a special headphone as well, the headset which is working on induction. In the cloud are circulating sounds which I have recorded in very electrical places like server rooms and um, um, places where is uh, a lot of storage, hard disks, uh, everything which actually makes the digital cloud possible and electrical communication. Um, the idea behind it is that Nowadays, all the advertisement, all the idea of using smartphones and any kind of, well, our digital life around is to make, to, it should seem free, it should seem natural, it should seem something which is just magic. But of course it isn't. I mean, there's a lot of hardware behind, there's a lot of electricity consuming behind. This is hidden. But it, it goes on all the time. You, know, you see people on a meadow uh, with a um, computer and uh, then there's a cloud above and that's it. <laughs> so my cloud, uh, in a little, in a way, my cloud is ironical. It shows a real cloud and you hear everything which is happening electromagnetic-wise to transform your information from one place to the other or to store it or to do whatever you want. Uh, I think this sounds a little bit, um, they're not really beautiful or yeah, strange and it's again what I said I want to put questions to people I want not to say this is good this is bad they can find out by themselves but just to to change or uh, to become curious about what is behind all this
a lot of my work um, has been engaging different media. Even when I worked with these cable structures, they were visual sculptures. They were either on walls or they were crossing through the room. And they were for me, putting a cable is like making a drawing. It's just an electrical drawing. And um, I think that um, sound work, as long as it comes to my personal work, has to be aesthetic. It has to be, in a way, beautiful, because behind the beauty, you discover the ugliness. But this combination of the visual and the auditive, for me, is very important. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.